During the first season of this podcast, I had the opportunity to talk with Dominique Dubois-Gillard about his book, which was new at the time, called Rethinking Incarceration. One of the things we talked about was the difficulty and opportunity to steer the ship even slightly in institutional spaces already, and often blindly, dominated by whiteness and privilege. His most recent book dives directly into that conversation. Subversive Witness coaches and encourages readers towards leveraging one's privilege rather than simply being another critique of the problems that come with having it. I loved the book, and as always, I loved talking with Dominique. Check it out. So you um, you were in Chicago, and then you moved back to Georgia, where you're right. originally from. Yep. Um, I was talking about, you know, you and I talk about home a lot, and location, geography means a lot yep. um, for for most folks you you spent some time out here in Oakland uh, yep. you spent some time in Chicago and now you're back in Georgia where you where you grew up uh, does it feel I was asking you you're going back to are you in Atlanta I'm in the metro area so not not Atlanta in, specific yeah does it feel like home home? And, and what does that even mean for you anymore after this many years uh, on the road, working in different places, developing relationships? Does Atlanta feel like home? What What is home for you at this point? <laughs> um, I think it feels like home because my family's here. Um, and so to have my mom, dad, sister, and brother all here uh, makes it feel like home in that regard. Um, I think it feels like home because my wife and son are plugging in really well and really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my son from my first marriage, his mom and his that side of the family's here too. And so yeah. it feels like home for him in that regard. I think for me, um, the other piece that, you know, just makes it feel like home is like as a black person, it's really hard to go from Atlanta and the cultural overtones of Atlanta to any other place. Um, Say more, because I mean, that's one of the things about Atlanta as an area. Folks talk about Atlanta as like the blackest city in America. Yep. And in, yep. I mean, by numbers, to some degree, concentration, it's, it is depending on how you measure, you know, areas like Detroit, whatever. But when you talk about, like, as a black person, home in Atlanta, how's that worked for you? I just think so, like, for to parallel Atlanta versus somewhere like Detroit. Like, Detroit, there's a lot of black people, but there's not a lot of black people in positions of influence mm-hmm. and or culture and culture setters and kind of i would say rhythm keepers of the city Hmm. where in atlanta you got black folk who are in charge who are you know socially connected who are influencers of not just you know Legislation is something that the South is still trying to catch up on in regards, but Atlanta, you know, made huge strides towards that this year. Um, but 
you've got folks who whose fingerprints have been on the cultural landscape of yes. the city in a way that informs everybody's life in the city. And that's something that I really don't see. I mean, there's pockets of DC where you would say, I would say that that's also true. Hmm. There's elements of Chicago where I think that that's true, but I don't know another city. New Orleans, would, I think, would be an exception. Um, I think New Orleans it would also be true, but I would still even say in New Orleans, there's not as many black folk in positions of power and leadership as you see in Atlanta. And now you and I've talked about this a little bit. That is a, it's, it's a fascinating, um, the, the racial history and, and the power that like the, the, the history of power and race in Atlanta is fascinating because it is at the same time, the birthplace of the KKK. Yeah. And so like the, it makes Atlanta a really fascinating, I don't even want to call it like a, like a study, but it, there's a way in which uh, paying attention to a blacker city like Atlanta can deeply inform the understanding of race and power in America. Yeah. So technically where the Klan would have emerged would be Stone Mountain, which is right outside the technical city limits in the metro area. Um, but yes, what you're saying is profoundly true, and Stone Mountain itself is a really fascinating study in the fact that that is the birthplace of the Klan. And Stone Mountain today is like, I would say, 87% Black. And so that's actually where I went to high school and where my parents still live. Um, and so, and for the first time this year, they had a Juneteenth celebration. Right. And they are really working to try to re, I don't even know what the right word is, but to redesign the mountain so they face the Confederacy and potentially. Uh, put up some more reflective iconography in the mountain uh, than what's currently there. That study, paying attention to the, the relationship between power um, and black influence, um, kind of, part of what would be an important study or important thing to pay attention to is in the particular moment we're in now where I think it was yesterday. It was a governor Bill Lee right in Tennessee, mm. like drop this whole thing about like, if you, if you teach, um, yeah. if, you, if, if you, yeah, if you teach critical race theory, <laughs> we'll sue your school or like we'll fine your school like $5 million or something along these lines. Yeah. Like the pushback against the understanding of, 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 of the relationship between blackness and power in, in the current moment Again, that's part of what makes Atlanta so fascinating is in a place where like this like the seat of white power was for a time. Yeah. This this um rush of the sort of wave of black influence and black and black cultural influence, like this has become like like uh fundamentally shaping of Atlanta. Yep. Um you work in a lot of white spaces. We talked about this a while ago. 
what is yep. the fear here? Because Atlanta is a flourishing city. That's the other side of the coin with Atlanta. Is it's a beautiful and flourishing city. It's it's more so now economically robust than it was 20, 25, 30, 45 years ago. Yep. What is the fear? Like, what what is the fear when, when Governor Bill Lee wants to stop teachers from educating folks on critical race theory? <laughs> do you understand the fear? Like, what what is that? You see in because you're around folks, particularly white church folks, who don't want critical race theory taught. Mm -hmm. What is the fear? Like, what's the concern? Are you able to articulate it, or is it just one of those fears that's like it's a ghost and no one get no one knows why they're scared? Well, they're scared because they don't know what critical race theory is, and so I think there is this deep apprehension within. I would say most white people, period, in the U.S., that they understand that the inequity and the privileges and advantages that they have are ill-gotten, hmm. and that one day folks are going to be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together, and they're going to truly be held accountable for how this disadvantage was accrued. And I think as you see things like George Floyd awaken more folk to the reality that something's been going on that they've been asleep to, uh, they seen a lot of orgs like BLM or Me Too or Church Too or all these different places where these conversations have been needed but have been dormant to an extent mm -hmm. um they're getting new energy and so i think folks are feeling like the pieces of the puzzle are starting to come together yes and so what can we do to preempt that and one of the biggest things that they could do is further retrench the educational system um that's already you know teaching lies and propaganda um to exacerbate the the misinformation uh folks that are being propagated to try to sustain the status quo or even regain some some territory that they feel has been lost yeah it's a, it's a, it is the strange circular it's circular reasoning but it's like it's it's to some degree the thing that fear does is it locks you into the spiral because insofar as you know, the relationship between political power, whiteness, blackness, influence, these are all questions of power. The thing, that, yep. <laughs> the thing that you have to be willing to sacrifice in order to even understand is power. That to, rec yep. to, to recognize the history, to recognize black history as black history and as part of human history in America, I actually have to relinquish some of the power that comes from being white. I have to actually deal with my, deal with? I have to recognize my privilege and that yep. part of how I end up where I am has to do with privilege, which takes us to your book. Yep. You, you chose a very interesting, which you did before you chose a really interesting path. Um, subversive, the book is called subversive witness and it's scriptures call to leverage privilege in, in a time when really understandably a lot of other, um, 
a lot of other uh, black leadership is is move, stepping away from trying to educate the privileged. Um, you're stepping a little bit deeper into that role and saying, I want to talk to folks who have privilege. I want to I want I want to talk to folks like McRoberts and say, I need you to understand how important it is for you to get this. Can you talk about the choice to to move that direction? Yeah. So for me. When I think about writing a book, uh, because a book is a labor of love, uh, mm-hmm. you have to exhaust yourself um, to bring it to fruition. I have to care so deeply about the subject matter that I'm willing to put my body and my family through mm-hmm. all that it produced the book. Yeah. And so for me, I have to take time to really discern where I see avoid in our discipleship paradigms and where I see the church's witness really being hamstrung. And as I, in my role, uh, where I essentially function as a pastor to pastors, helping them make connections between discipleship, justice, biblical justice, and race as our call to be ambassadors of reconciliation, um, there is nothing stymieing our witness like the conversation of privilege. And so for me, the entering in is to say, like, let's be clear. We might, you might make the choice to not have this difficult conversation, but this is a conversation about Christian discipleship, not political partisanship. Um, And if we can really get down to the fact that this is a discipleship conversation, if you choose not to have it, then that's between you and God. But you can't choose not to have it because you get to explain it away Hmm. as something the gospel is unconcerned about. Um, And I think there are a lot of well-intended Christians who actually would reckon with this conversation anew if they really could see some kind of biblical foundation for why we're called to engage in it. Hmm. And so for me, I wanted to provide that foundation and to really walk folk through a revelation of not only is this a conversation that scripture addresses, it consistently addresses it and repeatedly calls us to recognize the ways in which we are slowly but surely conforming to the patterns of the world when we denounce conversations like these as conversations that the gospel is unconcerned with. And we ultimately use the same defensive responses as the world when people want to talk about realities like systemic sin or institutional injustice or our corporate responsibility for the sins of our foreparents in regards to the systemic and social inequities in which we inherit. So saying, you know, well, I never owned a slave or I didn't participate in indigenous genocide. Like, I can understand how people outside the church respond that way, but the gospel doesn't give Christians room to respond in that way and consider ourselves faithful to the life and ministry and witness of Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to like just make that claim because I think there are a lot of people who 
have been struggling with those questions, but there's not, I don't know of a resource that really makes that plain and takes the time to really work with the biblical text in a way that elucidates that. about I mean the thing you said a moment ago you said like, I mean, you can choose to not have this conversation yep. but it's not like the conversation isn't being asked of you and part of what you go after and you, you did this you you did this uh, initially with uh with your with your first book um about incarceration that, that you know this is this is not a question that is coming at you from you know quote unquote the culture around you these are biblical considerations yep what is it about how is it that race in light, in light of, a, I mean, the old Testament centers itself on a particular people from a particular yeah. place. It is a racial, it's, it is a racial story. It's about Egyptians and, and Jews. And I mean, I mean, it race pervades the entirety of the book. What is it? How is it that this many years down the line, the conversation about race, specifically in America, becomes a secondary or even tertiary issue. Like, like what? How does that divorce happen? How do we? How do we get to that sense of like, like fully racially disembodied conversations? That there is the gospel, there's salvation, there's church, there's worship, etc. And if you want to talk about race, that is a that that's something that's happening in the culture around us. How do we get there? Like, what happened? Uh, we get there through people exploiting their privilege in self-serving ways. Hmm. So we get there from the fact that the vast majority of theologians and preachers and biblical teachers uh, in our country's history have been white males uh, I would even say middle to upper class white males who didn't find it aligned with their self-interest to emphasize how scripture is this story of God working in a particular people moving outward towards all people hmm. um, and how scripture is this call for the people of God to recognize that the story of God is bigger than themselves and God, but it is an expansive story that invites the other, the outsider, uh, the one who is deemed unclean um, into a transformative and intimate relationship with us as the people of God. And we ultimately bear witness to the fact that we are gods through our ability to overcome the social stratifications and barriers that the rest of the world continues to be confounded by. And so in that, you know, part of the biblical story is that, you know, one of the things that Israel really struggles with is they struggle to discern the fact that they are uh, chosen by God, but their relationship with God is not exclusive. Hmm. Um, and so God is constantly pushing Israel to have this bigger understanding of what God is willing into existence. And Israel resisted. Yes. Um, and there's a difference it, between being chosen and being preferred. Yeah. Or even exclusive. Um, and, you know, and that's where I think, you know, you know, that's where some of the logic can 
can parallel. It's not the you know cut and paste, but it can parallel with you know the logic of racial superiority hmm. and exclusiveness. And you know, in this country, we've had this whole long legacy and history of believing that you know we can contaminate the purity of white the white race uh, through kind of this racial mix, mixing with mongrels and, you know, whatever, you know, the different languages as it has evolved over time. But there has been this confusion that to be with God in right relationship is to be exclusive and to, to not see yourself as connected to others who are different than you when the actual thrust of the gospel is antithetical to that mindset. And it is actually showing how God is constantly breaking down mm. these walls of hostility and division and us and them to create a new we um, mm. and a new, a new identity, a new people, a new family. Um, and I think, you know, we see this in how scripture has been misinterpreted over and over again. I mean, one of the classic ways is even like you were talking about, about the Hebrews. But when we think about like the Exodus, like for so long, we thought that the only people who uh, fled in the Exodus were, you know, the Egyptians. But that's not true. When you actually pay attention to scripture, it talks about this being like a multi-ethnic expression of folk leaving bondage into freedom. Mm -hmm. um, there are these, these pictures of where we see scripture is very intentionally getting after this, this mindset of a, a particular people being better than another. Yes. And that a sustainable ethic and worldview for someone who has found new life in Christ. Like that's just not, it's incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I think we got here because we've had theologians who weren't willing to interpret scripture on his own terms and bear witness to the truth of the gospel, but they have domesticated the text in a way that aligned with their own self-interest and the, the, the pattern of this world. I mean, the, there's no clearer example of this than uh, the slave Bible, where they took all of the passages about freedom and liberation and guys act, acting on behalf of the oppressed and literally stripped them out of the Bible and reconstructed a new Bible and would give that to slaves as a way to, you know, coerce them into submission. Right. Like, if that is not the the most, <laughs> I mean, that's the quintessential example of how we got here because of people in power exploiting their power for self-interest and not strategically leveraging their power to paint a more expansive picture of the kingdom and to sacrificially love their neighbor yes. who is being impaired by the status quo. And part of what you pretty relentlessly get after in your public communication, you've done it in your books, is that that process never actually ceased. That while something as nefarious and like obviously just dark as re-editing the Bible and then handing that Bible edited to black people specifically and intentionally to misinform them about the faith you were then 
forcing down their throats. While that's not quite as <laughs> quite as pervasive, the the process of of reshaping a gospel around whiteness never really ceased when yeah. it comes to the evangelical presentation of Christ in America. Yeah. Like it never it never quite ended. We you and I talked about the you know the Sunday afternoon lynchings last time we had a yep. conversation that part of part of what it looked like in certain towns throughout America specifically in the south was you went you you did your church service in the morning and then after church a lot of the congregation would head to the town square to watch a black man hung that it was part of the church culture yeah saw no contradiction between you know what they went to go do in the sanctuary on Sunday morning and what they were participating in in the afternoon so for folks who look at their own their own religious and racial culture now and they see those you know what you and I I think would agree are like these are really really extreme examples and they would say like nothing like that is happening in the same way in the same way that I might say like I didn't own a slave neither did my father neither did my grandfather yep. and so I'm you know I'm separated from this extreme example can you help make the connection though like the way that's the way that continues to pervade as a as a person who pastors pastors, one of the yeah. things you're discipling these pastors towards, because a lot with like you know sixty to eighty percent at least of the pastors in the Evangelical Covenant Church where you work are still white men. You're moving them away from this orientation around whiteness. Where do you see that showing up? Well, like where do you see whiteness in pastoral leadership? keeping folks even right now from like fully embodying and fully communicating the wholeness of the gospel. Yeah, I think I see it in I think there's still a a kind of blind faith that exists within much of the church. Hmm for authority and that blind faith does not reckon with the fact that you have fallible people in positions of power who oftentimes don't have the maturity or the integrity to surround themselves with people who will call them out when they go astray or who will help you know, bring them back into right relationship with God and neighbor. And therefore, their sinfulness ultimately oozes out from a personal sinfulness and starts to distort and pervert systems and structures in which they are tasked with stewarding. And so I think when we get into conversations about talking about systems and structures, there is a segment of the church who says that those conversations are irrelevant because all of this is just a heart matter. And it's about, you know, transforming the hearts of individuals and the systems and structural worldview is not in alignment with the gospel. And I think that's, it's really a dodge in the fact that it is undeniable that scripture talks about institutional sin, structural sin and violence, and 
And the need for the people of God to play a role in holding uh, officials accountable for doing what's right. I mean, yes. perfect example of this is Proverbs 31. Um, hmm. You have uh, the king's mom who writes him a letter. And basically she says, because of who and whose you are, you can't be like other kings who waste their time, you know, getting drunk on wine, being out here with all these women and yada, yada, and neglecting their, their role as king. What you have to do is make sure that you speak up for those who, don't, who can't speak for themselves yes. and to make sure that justice is enacted in the courts and that the poor aren't being trampled upon. Yes. And so if you see the king's mom prophetically speaking into his life like this and saying because of him being a follower of Jesus, his life is supposed to be distinctively different than other people who don't have that same new life in Christ. I believe that that call is something that reverberates out to the broader body and gives us a vision and a blueprint for what does it mean for us as the people to actually speak into our common life together yes. by hope our elected officials accountable to make sure that they're stewarding for the common good. That's really good. Um, I was in a uh, very recent conversation about about critical race theory and it was exactly what you mentioned earlier that the person this person was nervous about critical race theory being you know taught in her kids classroom yep. and i just thought i asked the question i said what is it about critical race theory and she said something along the lines of it being you know she didn't use the word anti-american but so, you know um and i said and and i asked i'm like well can, like what is what is it and she and the, the the her bottom line was like it had to do with like um, she didn't understand it. There, there was like there wasn't an explanation of, uh, explanation of what critical race theory was. And I said I don't think I don't think we can say no to a thing that you don't actually understand. Yeah. Uh, that her next question was actually fascinating because it went to to some degree like w like where the narratives come from, um, mm -hmm. which is a really great and humble question, right? To say like okay, well then maybe I just don't understand. So where does where does this come from? Where does where like where does the critical race theory narrative come from? And then where does the where does the the the, the narrative come from that it is a threat? So we talked about to some degree where the threat comes from. And it was fascinating to watch like the struggle uh, in her and other folks in the conversation that when it comes to critical race theory that like this is coming from like black academia. And should it not though? Should it not then be enough? that if if black americans are saying this is important for you to understand in order to be my neighbor that should be enough it should be enough for you to want to want to learn it that it's something that i am suggesting is important which rubbed and the fact that that is so that is so pervasively pushed back on among white christians is is so counter to the biblical instruction to value the voices of the oppressed yeah, like that wild disconnect, and that's part of where you know it's probably why I ask you, like as as you work with pastors, yeah, to make that biblical connection that we don't jump from like here here these you know here's this this biblical education about power and about oppression and what it looks like to be a person of privilege to be a person of power and act and and love in relationship to people who have less power. We don't jump from this as a cute story. 
to then ignoring all the power dynamics. Like, no, no, the instruction is there so that you live it out now. It's fascinating to watch folks not just not just ignore, but like fundamentally deny that as a reality that, yes, you are clearly instructed, clearly instructed to value the voices and the plight of oppressed persons. And then when oppressed persons say, this is important for me, that you understand this so that we can be neighbors, <laughs> that white Christian Americans would say something along the lines of, A, I don't buy your oppression, and B, the narrative you're feeding me makes me uncomfortable and I don't want you to tell my kids. Like that's like it's it, you know, how similar that is to being uh, to the, the parallel of we will we will worship on Sunday in a building in which we hear these things about the sweetness, the goodness and the care of a loving God. And then we will walk down the street and watch black people hung and allow that to be part of our religious day like that. The, the, that parallel is it's um, it's really saddening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Willie Jennings would talk about how. You know, it's actually not as discongruent as it seems on the surface, because when you get down to what's actually was being preached and taught and discipled in these congregations, it actually was more in alignment with what would happen on Sunday afternoon mm. than um, something that actually would call people away from that. And and I think that's really important because in I think there is an assumption that we make when people profess faith in Christ that it means these common things that I hmm. think we're to realize that that assumption doesn't hold as much weight as we hoped that it would. Um, in other words, part of what I'm hearing you say is that when someone – the assumption that we make about common, the, the common experience and common definition when I say I'm a Christian – and you say I'm a Christian. The fact that I think is a part of what you're getting at. The fact that like Dominic Gillard is a black man. When you say I'm a Christian, not by way of uh, it's not even a negative. It's like you're you mean that differently because of your your incarnate, your embodied experience of life and faith. It means something different for you when you say I'm a Christian. Yes, but I think the reason why it means something different for me is because of how I've been discipled mm. um, and what is what was taught and preached and kind of integrated into what it meant to follow Jesus for me is something fundamentally different than what it has what has been true in many other faith communities. So uh, if you're in a faith community where you've never been taught that racial justice or reconciliation has anything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then when you're seeing, you know, racial animus and unrest blow out in the streets, you legitimately can say that, oh, that's a social issue that mm -hmm. doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's not, that's actually not a dodge for you because that's how you have been taught to understand the gospel of Jesus it's in Christ. line it's in line with your religious religious it, education to to yeah. not just not see the gap but actually deny the relationship between race and power as a conversation and That's discipleship and salvation and yep. biblical principles in general where me from you know infancy i've been taught that this stuff is all interconnected 
and that we bear witness to the fact that we are Jesus's disciples through how we choose to love one another, especially across lines of difference. Um, because the way that I was taught the Good Samaritan story is, you know, we got into the nitty gritty of the story mm. and talked about the fact that, you know, the man who was helped on the side of the road, if he was actually conscious, he probably would have denied the help because it was somebody that he would have never wanted to touch or assist him. Which was, um, a, like, which, and because, because there was a racial and power divide yeah. and, 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 yeah. and, 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 uh, like a, a, the a dynamic of animus between their races and the power yep. structures on either side of those races questions. But if you are a disciple and taught the passage of the Good Samaritan and you never get down into that nitty gritty and you think it's just a story about, oh, Christian charity because we see somebody who's hurt, then when the story gets more complex and enfleshed in our world and those same power dynamics that you were just alluding to now become part of the story, then you can actually start to think, oh, well, this isn't actually the same as the mm. Good Samaritan passage. And so therefore, I might not be commissioned to call this person my neighbor and love them sacrificially in the way that I see this unfolding in Scripture. And so I think there's, it's really significant, the, the lack of nuance, uh, that a yes. lot of our preaching and teaching has yes. to give this flesh and, and feet to walk in our world. Mm. And so that's one of the things that I really tried to do in Subversive Witness is to double down and to say like, hey, like these are all biblical stories. Not one of these stories I'm talking about in this book is new. But I guarantee you I'm adding some layers and some levels to how we think about engaging this text and what engaging this text means for our ethic in the world. Yes. Because I know folks have not had a robust engagement with the text that really brings those extra layers to bear in a way that really asks us sober questions about what does it mean for mm -hmm. us to faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of the the chaos that we're seeing um, unfold before us in our communities. There's this principle in uh, in book writing and songwriting and art um, that if you try to do something, if you try to make something, write something for everyone, yep, you will miss everyone. Yep. Like if if you think you're going to write a book for everyone, who's your audience? Anybody. If you're making a record, who's the record for? It's for anybody. If you think your audience is general, you will miss everybody. That the particular focuses actually matter. Yep. Part of what you do um, so well is with these with these stories from the scriptures. Is is you really responsibly say, "Hey, y'all, the the details here matter." Yep. The fact that this person is like is part of this tribe of folks matters. Yep. And if it didn't matter, it wouldn't be mentioned. And if we're going to do this thing with the Bible and talk about like the every word counts and the editing, if we're going to have that argument, then on the other side of the argument, if it is mentioned that this woman is a Samaritan, then you need to know what that means. Yep. And why that's important, because otherwise, a, it wouldn't be mentioned, and b, and b, 
if you don't pay attention to that, if you don't recognize the particularity of the moment, then you will miss the particularity of your own moment and yeah. not actually live the incarnate faith that the scriptures have been educating you towards from the beginning. You do that really responsibly and really well. The last piece I want to get into, it has to do with like recognizing whiteness as a particular. That it's so, not just a matter of like recognizing a, a person's blackness. Part of what you're doing with the book, and I said this is, this is what, what I think is, is unique about your expression and your work, is as a black man, you are educating white folks about their whiteness, about my whiteness, as a particular understanding, as, like, as a particular aspect of who I am. You had Mark Laberton from Fuller Theological give the for, you know, write the foreword for the book. Um, talk about your experience over time of, uh, of, first of all, like what is whiteness to you now? Like how, how do you define whiteness? And then talk about your experience of educating and discipling white people about their own whiteness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whiteness is really a socialization that teaches folks to see, inhabit, and engage in the world in a particular way that is rooted in a superiority that can slowly but surely become a supremacy, but doesn't have to be a supremacy, but it is a superiority hmm. um, that assumes a good number of entitlements in the world and questions any movement or teaching or proclamation that questions those entitlements. Hmm. Uh, and so... The, the unquestioned part of what you just got to is fascinating. Part of what whiteness is, is it is a denial of other narratives. Yeah. It's not just a narrative that... Once I hold, and if I prefer it, I, I, I might choose to deny other narratives. Part of what whiteness is, as a narrative, is the denial of other narratives. Yeah, and, you know, one of the ways it subtly but surely manifests itself in that way is that whiteness gets superimposed as a universal. Um, when, if you spend any time with people... And I'm not talking about people who are striving towards whiteness, who are willing to, therefore, you know, marginalize themselves, their story and their suffering hmm. to try to fit in. But I'm talking about if you talk to more than a token number of uh, BIPOC folk, Black, Indigenous people of color, they will clearly and quickly show you that what you're saying is a universal is not something that is true for all humanity. Yeah. Um, but there is this way in which whiteness functions as a universal and therefore marginalizes other narratives. I mm. mean, this is so clear, uh, so true and um, illustrative in our educational system. So like we said earlier, there's U.S. history, then there's black history. There's, <laughs> right. you know, there's Latino yes. history. There's, there's all of these. And same thing's true with theology. There's theology, and then there's 
liberation theology, uh, womanist theology, black yes. theology, yes. brown and ra- theology. Rarely, if ever, but if only, ever, would you see James Cone show up in a class on theology. Yeah. There would yeah, be a exactly. separate class that might be on a, like the particular study of like maybe a book of his or a chapter or so, but it doesn't get folded into theology as a thing. So it's, it's, it's this centering of what is history? Well, history is this history that centers whiteness and might give some token acknowledgments to a few people with pigmentation. But this is what really U.S. history is. What is theology? Theology is biblical interpretation and proclamation that is flowed from the minds, thoughts, and scholarship of a very select particular group of people um, that has not had to reckon with the power dynamic and the discrimination and systemic sin that scripture repeatedly addresses. And therefore, when you interpret, you know, a book uh, like Exodus, you don't really have to grapple with the quandary that Moses' mom finds herself in. Right, right. when the only choice she has in a society that says that she must kill her baby just because of his ethnic identity is to either break the law or to be complicit with his murder. Like, you don't have to grapple with what it means to live in the flesh and have to make decisions like that on a daily basis that you know oppose the will of God because of the power structure that is in play. Hmm. And so that you never having to reckon with those questions or to reckon with the trauma that Moses has to carry as an Egyptian boy being raised in Pharaoh's household where the decree comes from that his life must be ended. Like, how does he, he's being socialized to be a part of the power structure that ultimately is prosperous and powerful because of the subjugation of the people that he actually biologically belongs to. Like talk about the identity crisis and like that a person. And so it's no wonder that Moses doesn't really fully understand who he is and what God is calling him to until well into his life, because he's trying to figure out what the heck is going on in his own body. And so, like, when you never have to wrestle with God in that way, when you never have to stay steadfastly on your knees in prayer, trying to figure out how do you cling to faith in God amidst such an oppressive, uh, dehumanizing reality, Mm. then you're not going to interpret the text in a way that actually flushes some of that complexity out. And so that's what I was trying to get at there earlier when I was talking about, you know, we make certain assumptions about what it means to be Christian, but in many contexts, there are people who've never reckoned with Scripture on that level. Yes. And then there are other parts of the body who this is what they know the good news to be. Yes. Something willing to enter into this despair, this brokenness, and to bring transformation and liberation and freedom so that people actually have the ability to live into all of what God created them to be. And so when you have these two very different understandings of what good news actually is, it's going to lead to a very different ethic in regards to how do we bear witness to that good news in the midst of the brokenness that abounds. Mm. And so that, that would be 
kind of the way that I would I would speak to that. And I would say that, you know, whiteness is also a, a refusal to acknowledge that these differences matter theologically and mm -hmm. have any bearing on our biblical inter interpretation and also our, our ethic in the world. Knowing uh, one's on uh, one's own story, like being familiar with one's own story, like you know, these are conversations you and I have had before. The part of what you know, part of how the scriptures initially emerged, were it was an effort and a gift by which a particular people would recognize themselves in the world. That was how the thing came together. It continues to theoretically be the gift. Is like how do you how do you find yourself as a person in the world? That's theoretically one of the gifts. The great gifts of black art, black leadership, and black influence is like is an American witness of a of a people who, despite every effort, <laughs> despite every best effort of power structures and influences from the outside, a, a people who have worked diligently to recognize themselves in the world in which they live, to know for black Americans to know black America's story. It's a gift you are offering persons of privilege that if you don't know your story, you're lost in the world. Yep. That one of the one of the actual terrors, and I think it was propaganda. We had a conversation about this like two or three years ago. That one of uh, one of the sad uh, terrors of whiteness is it actually really does limit my capacity to live as a fully human person. Yep. I don't get to live fully human if I buy into whiteness as an actual cultural anthropological reality. It's a political structure. And, and it, I never get to experience communion that God in, created me to enjoy yes. with, with my sisters and brothers. Because whiteness is always going to function in a way that is over and against and therefore putting you in a a position of superiority or a position in which you feel that you get to dictate the rights of communion and the rights and the terms in which communion takes place. Yes. And it never allows us to equitably see ourselves as inherently interconnected. Mm -hmm. And for you to ever truly believe that your peace and prosperity, peace and prosperity and flourishing is inherently tied up in mine. Wow. Um, because it's seen as categorically different. Um, and so that's the other way in which whiteness prohibits us, from, you know, prohibits white folks who subscribe to that logic from ever truly being able to be free and to be to be Christian first and foremost, to yeah. really, truly bear witness to the fact that, um, you know, they are commissioned in the world with a missional purpose. And part of the missional purpose is to discern the deception of whiteness mm -hmm. and to denounce it for what it is and to or to strategically leverage it in a way in which you are subversively using it to further the kingdom and, and to create systemic accountability and change um, so that you can sacrificially love your neighbor mm -hmm. in a way that denies 
what whiteness's foundation is, which says that inherently there is a difference between you as a white person and people of color. Man, honestly, uh, your work always has been a gift. Thank you for continuing to do it. Um, it's been an exhausting season for a lot of folks, um, and I'm really glad you continue to not just press on, but but to do so with um, confidence and to do so with authority. It's um, it's a gift to me, and I know it's a gift to a lot of the folks you and I both care about who uh, need the kind of help that, um, that you're offering and need the gift that you are making in the world. So thank you for your time today. And thank you for this great book. Yeah. And Justin, let me just say one last thing real quick. Um, I think, um, when I think about whiteness from a biblical perspective, one of the things that's really helpful for me is the scripture is explicit about the fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. So one of the ways that folk get tripped up about this is when we're talking about white folk, they make the mistake, uh, whiteness, they make the mistake of thinking we're talking about white people. Hmm. We are not talking about white people. We're talking about whiteness as a, as a socialization that, again, teaches people to see, inhabit, and engage in the world in a particular way that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hmm. And in that way, whiteness, not white people, whiteness functions as a power and a principality, dividing mm. what the gospel of Jesus Christ came to unify. Wow. And so when scripture tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, our fight is never against white people. Our fight is against whiteness and the way that whiteness distorts many white people's identity so that their identity is rooted in whiteness versus the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are trying to liberate our sisters and brothers from that deception to say that there is a fuller, more robust, more authentic manifestation of life that can only be found in Christ, which means a departure from the socialization of whiteness. And so when scripture tells us that we do fight against principality, powers and principalities, we are commissioned to fight against whiteness because it is antithetical to the gospel. It is something that is seducing people into deception and lies and an identity that is not true and an identity that is not redemptive. And so what we're doing is actual gospel work in trying to help people to understand the deception of whiteness mm. and the way in which it leads them away from being able to uh, find new life in Christ and bear witness to that new life through their proclamation and demonstration of the news of the gospel. Man, so powerful. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for your time today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Got it. And thank you for joining me for this episode of the At Sea Podcast. If you'd like to follow up with Dominique Gillard, you can visit him at dominiquegillard, that's two L's, dot com. And from there, you can jump to his books, Rethinking Incarceration and the brand new one, Service of Witness. They are both excellent reads. Following along with Dominique and his work culturally and institutionally has quite literally revolutionized the way I see the work of justice happen in the world. 
If you'd like to be part of the team of people who make this podcast happen, right now is a great time to do so because if between now and the end of the year you become a patron, everyone who is a patron of mine before the end of 2021 will get a book that no one else in the world gets. The book is going to be called, well, the ebook is going to be called At Sea Reflections, and it is quite literally that. It's short reflections on the themes, the topics, and the conversations that we've been having with some of these guests over the last year to year and a half. I'm excited to put it in the world, and I'm really excited to make, the, make this an exclusive gift to you as a patron. Jump to patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts, and I'll see you there.